Hello everyone, it's November 29th, 2022. This week we're doing a review of Artemis 1 up till now and what to expect in the coming days. It's got another 12 to go, but it's looking good. It's taken many years just to get to this point, but given the success so far, maybe the wait was worth it. But no use in us waiting, so lift off. So I guess we're going to keep it short. Big show last week. Yeah, might as well uh, <laughs> get right into things. I don't know if people see episodes like that and like, I don't know what effect it has because we've had discussions about like whether or not people like that or they don't like it or it's, you know, too long and then you don't want to listen to it or whatever. I mean, I have no idea, but, um, mm. but I guess if you didn't like last week's show because it was too long, then our goal is to make this one maybe slightly too short or maybe just right. And what, what sucks a little is that we can't really answer that question anymore because uh, FeedBurner is in the, the sunset phase. Um, we route our RSS feed through FeedBurner before it goes to aggregators like uh, Apple, uh, the Apple podcast store and Spotify um, because we get better stats out of FeedBurner than we do out of um, uh, Squarespace, which is where our RSS feed is is hosted. And yeah, so FeedBurner is in sunset mode. And so they've disabled all of the analytics that we had access to. So our our URLs are still active, which is good, but that's that's about it. So we're we're not really going to have good stats until we move to a new website, which I was working on and then I stopped working on because uh, work has been keeping me very, very busy <laughs> writing code. And so all of my, all my coding brain, you know, cause I've got a limited amount of time in the day where I can access that creative portion of my brain. Uh, the rest of the day is for video games and <laughs> drudgery <laughs> that doesn't need attention. I do a choice and you know, some work tasks. I mean, I work, I work eight hours a day. Yeah. So we, we don't have access to uh stats, so we can't even really answer that question right now. I mean, I've got historical data that I've, I've got archived, um, but it's not, it's never been super elucidating Hasn't been super helpful to answer that question. Elucidating, I think it work. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess with that, we should press on with the show, huh? <laughs> Let's do it. We have a day-to-day breakdown of uh, the progress with Artemis 1, the progress that it's making. I forget now, how many? Has it been two weeks? I don't even remember now. About two weeks, I think. Yeah, I think since about. it launched. Yeah, I think we're on day twelve right now. Yeah. And uh, splashdown is uh, expected is going to be on the eleventh of December, I should say, unless something goes horribly wrong. So I guess yeah. What what has Artemis been doing since uh, our last recording? Can we start with where Artemis is right now? It'll be two sure. days out of date by the time this airs. Uh, Artemis right now is in its DRO. So, cheers and congratulations. <laughs> is it is it thirty percent of the way through the the single DRO orbit it's doing? I mean, it entered the DRO a couple of days ago, and it's going to reach its its maximum distance from Earth tomorrow. Okay. So okay, yeah. So I'm looking at NASA eyes, and it's kind of hard to tell because the orbits are all Earth relative. I don't think you can put them into Moon relative, but it it looks like. Yeah, it just passed behind the moon, rel- you know, looking at it from Earth. Uh, you know what? Actually, no, it's it's a retrograde orbit. And so since it's ahead of the moon, it hasn't gone behind the moon yet. So I think it's like, yeah, it's before it's 50%. Yeah. So yeah, so that's that's where we are right now. 
I guess in the past week, the most interesting thing was this loss of communication that happened. Uh, I don't know if you guys had heard about that, but um, apparently there was 47 minutes where Orion, which was, you know, it wasn't like it was on the dark side, the far side of the moon or anything like that. It, you know, eclipsed by the moon. It it could have and should have been communicating with Earth, but it wasn't. And uh, I don't think they've really figured it out yet, or at least haven't released what the results of that are. But um, apparently there was some reconfiguration that needed to be done on uh, the Earth side <laughs> to be able to restore the communications, and they were able to do that just fine. And uh, yeah, so nothing to panic about, but I think that'll be something interesting when they release exactly what happened, what went wrong there, because right, that's the idea. This is a uh, this is a test flight. <laughs> you want to be able to shake uh, shake things out and see what kind of bugs uh, and gremlins pop up. Because when you have meat bags on board, um, it's going to be a lot higher stakes, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They've uh, Orion is now not not only is it in DRO as we're talking, just in retrograde orbit, but uh, yesterday it surpassed Apollo 13's uh, record distance from Earth. So now, as far as you know, we, we had talked about how it is the only crew-rated vehicle that is gone that's going to go further than any other crew-rated vehicle has ever gone before. And I like the asterisk that you got to put like that. It's crew rated and intended to take crew that far because there are technically yeah. some of these. <laughs> uh, there's a LEM or something, right? That's kind of on a heliocentric orbit, or uh, yeah, Elm, yeah, Elm Four. It's Snoopy, <laughs> but obviously Snoopy was not intended to take humans out to where it currently is. But anyway, so yeah, so that's um, that's where uh, uh, Orion's been and where it's going is for uh, a few days from now. Actually, maybe you know, maybe a weekish from now, it'll be uh, leaving the DRO, and on uh, days twenty twenty six, it'll be returning to Earth uh, with a uh, close approach to the Moon and the return flyby burn that you talked about last week, Ben. And then on day twenty six, uh, uh, aiming for a splashdown at one o six p.m. Eastern Standard Time on December eleventh. Which, if you remember that off the top of your head, David, that was damn impressive. <laughs> no, I just read it in the notes. You had it right there. Oh, okay. <laughs> But yeah, so it'll be cruising in uh, faster than any vehicle has ever, you know, any capsules returned from Earth. And so we'll see those parachutes do their job, hopefully, and the heat shield and everything work out well. Mm-hmm. So I'm optimistic, though. And Ben, I like that you highlighted uh, that Callisto is one of the uh, kind of things that they're testing, since you know I have a uh, an Alexa, an Amazon uh, Echo Dot. I-, I thought this was hilarious uh, in some of um, Chris... Gebhardt's uh, NSF reporting, NASA spaceflight reporting. The uh, the Alexa, right? So they're calling the whole demonstration Callisto because it's Alexa plus uh, a WebEx uh, for video conferencing uh, combo. Yeah, like Cisco WebEx, which Cisco. Yeah, I'm sorry for anybody who is intimately familiar with how bad it is. Oh God, I yeah. If you want to interact with NASA, you have to get WebEx, which is aggravating because <laughs> I do not like it either. So Chris has a, a quote from uh, a person who's working on this program with uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, Rob Chambers. And he says, uh, or the article says, the Alexa taking part in the Callisto demonstration is not able to interface with any critical spacecraft systems like life support or propulsion. Mm-hmm. Quote, Alexa can't abort the mission or fire an engine, noted Chambers, and rightfully so. <laughs> Which if you've ever interacted with one of these devices, you know that they – hear things that you didn't say, or you don't say anything, they suddenly start responding to you, or you tell them something and they totally 
misinterpret what you said. And so I could imagine just being like, you know, yeah. what is the cabin temperature preparing for transloader <laughs> injection? <laughs> I was like, oh, God, no. <laughs> right. Yeah. On, on Earth, the worst thing that happens is, you know, it potentially buys something off of Amazon or put something mm. ridiculous on your shopping list in space. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's how you get. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What it, what it's actually doing? Um, I had no idea about this beforehand. Is that it's it's going to test the the cabin lighting, which looks pretty sweet. Um, the kind of like nice blue lit lighting that they have going on in there during a lot of the interior pictures. Whether or not it accurately responds when they uh, query it with details about the spacecraft, like its velocity, and I'm sure different bits of telemetry that they uh, could ask for and that um there sounds like uh yeah they're, they're going to bring in this webex bit by having uh, a video conferencing slash whiteboard uh, as part of the demo and so that video conferencing i think that's cool um if, if you've seen the uh, any of the interior pictures right callisto has kind of like uh the circles the rings above uh, an ipad it, it, it's kind of like it's a panel and and the upper part of the panel has these two rings that kind of, you know, when, whenever your Alexa talks to you, you know, you get a little blue ring to let you know that it's communicating. And then uh, underneath uh, those two rings is the is an iPad, and that's where you know your your face uh, would show up if you were communicating. Is, with the is it actually an iPad? Yeah, I would have expected them to go with Android. I guess. Yeah, I I, I was saying it was interesting that how much uh, how really cotsy this is, you know, where this is. This is not just COTS where, you know, you can go and buy spacecraft components, but most right. humans don't go around buying spacecraft components, even if they are commercial off the shelf. Whereas this is like literally commercial off the shelf stuff that, you know, your random old person would use that is, you know, flying to space right now. Although one thing I'm going to say, may maybe it'll pan out well, but if something they end up scrapping the idea or if they end up scrapping some part of this uh, uh, ultimate Callisto system, the idea of a whiteboard when you have a delay. So like the astronauts could be highlighting stuff on the screen while people back at mission control can also be highlighting stuff on the same screen, like collaboratively. Yeah. But with that delay, <laughs> I just think that could be frustrating. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, but, but like collaborative editing, like it really is incredible. And I, I think, yeah, having a checklist where, where mission control can just dump notes onto you know your checklist or something like that could be really really good um, it has to be used appropriately because you know there are technological issues with you know comms going down and not getting an entire message or procedurally where somebody writes something down in shorthand that you weren't familiar with and you don't know what the shorthand means but mm. Uh, I, I think there there is a really good place for that. That's true. I mean, honestly, like everybody is, you know, so professional that I'm sure it really will work out. But I just, I don't know, I'm kind of just maybe being a bit trolly here. But like the idea of you just take any random people and ask them to kind of like, oh, let's collaborate using whiteboard, but we're going to introduce a several second delay. And it's like, that's just a recipe for chaos, in my <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> but I like Chris in the chat, uh, our, our resident pilot. Uh, highlighting that iPads are widely used for electronic flight bags for pilots. So yeah, so anyway, that's where uh, Artemis 1 is right now. Uh, Orion's still going well. I don't think I'm going to jinx it and I, by saying that things have gone fairly smoothly so far, and I hope that they continue to do so for its splashdown in a few weeks. But obviously, I guess we'll have updates 
between now and then. Cool. All right. So let's uh, transition on over to a new topic. Uh, the NASA history report on James Webb uh, has been released. Yeah. So so basically, um, James Webb had uh, James Webb, the administrator, the person who JWST is named after um, during COVID had there were some allegations that came up saying, hey, you know what? Maybe this isn't the best person to name a groundbreaking mission after because he presided over uh, the State Department and NASA uh, during a time when uh, gay people were actively being um, discriminated against. Um, and so the NASA uh, put together a history uh, panel, I guess, uh, but the the NASA history office um, did a, a quick look into it and said, nah, it's probably fine. Go ahead and launch it. I um, mean, this was like a, a month or two before the launch, I believe. Um, but they didn't publish a report. And everybody was kind of like, hey, you, you got to do that. And I don't remember them saying anything at the time, uh, but they have now published a, a more complete report than just the quick statement that they made. And I, I think what happened was they're like, you know what, it's COVID. We don't have access to everything. Uh, so we're, we're not going to release a full report. We're just going to, you know, release a statement about our impressions and then we'll do more later when we have access to more of these, uh, more of these documents um, and resources that we would like to have. So anyway, the report is, uh, fairly long. There's uh, a PDF link. We'll we'll link to the Space News article. I'll probably also throw a link to the actual PDF uh, of the report. And it, it's fairly long, uh, but it's not too bad. So I read through it, and I just wanted to talk about what's in there. Unfortunately, this report is like very specific. They targeted um, two particular meetings that James Webb was involved in. Uh, on the one hand, I, I understand why that's the case. Like, I don't think that we have uh, any of James Webb's like personal diaries or personal journal. Uh, and we certainly don't have, you know, a written record of his inner motivations. Um, but the report has been called out uh, by different people for being uh, incomplete and too highly targeted to really come to any, any useful conclusion. Okay. So if you, Look at the report all the way to the research methodology. It's something like 35 pages. And then there are, I don't know, like 10 pages of methodology. And it's nothing shocking. It's just listing. Uh, it is basically a bibliography. And so, you know, I didn't, I didn't look at any of the, uh, the appendices that have um, original documents. Um, I just read the report, which was written by um, NASA's lead historian, uh, our chief historian, I'm sorry, uh, Brian Odom, and uh, kind of just read his conclusions. And it's interesting because it's one of those documents that manages to say not a lot with a lot of words. Um, not that that's necessarily malicious, but that's the state of things. So like I said, they focused on two meetings that James Webb had. One was with President Truman uh, in uh, 1950, which is the beginning of the lavender scare, right? So there, there was the red scare, which is where McCarthy goes looking for communists. And then there's the lavender scare, which came hot on the heels of the red scare. And I think the name lavender scare comes from somebody saying the red scare now has a tint of lavender, um, where they started including, uh, homosexual people as, 
uh, part of the enemies of the state definition and their their witch hunts. So right, that that's all happening in 1950. The first thing that they're looking at is a meeting between President Truman and James Webb um, in the middle of 1950, and then the the second one is a meeting later that year. Like actually, I think it's the next month um, where James Webb met with uh, a senator, a White House counsel. Um, and an administrative assistant uh, to President Truman. And these are kind of like, apparently, some of the only things that we have that connect James Webb to um, the homophobic, homophobic activity that was happening in the government at that time. And like, short and sweet, the report concludes that there's not enough evidence to say that James Webb was involved uh, in any decision to fire a gay person. There is only one firing that they met that they call out specifically in the report and it was um a, a data analyst who was uh fired and then he sued and got his job back and the the evidence that is presented in this report i'm i'm going to try to be i'm going to try to be generous and assume that this is all of the evidence that's available um i i'm not 100% confident that's the case but like these are professional historians whether or not they are you know are suffering from motivated motivated reasoning or not it i i don't know but let's give them the benefit of the doubt um and so from this evidence that's presented you know they kind of come to the innocent until proven guilty perspective that there's not enough evidence however the evidence does show um or, or at least suggests that um, gay people being firing and or discriminated against uh, was below James Webb's attention level, both at the Department of State and uh, and at NASA. And the way that they try to show this is that uh, so the the Huey Committee was um, the Lavender Scare Witch Hunt Committee in Congress. Um, or one of I don't I don't even know if there was just one, um, but they the report shows that hey the coordination between uh, James Webb State Department and the Huey Committee was not conducted by uh, by James Webb. Instead, it was um, conducted by Hummelsen Hummelsena. I don't know how his name is pronounced, um, but uh, somebody else high ranking in the um, in the State Department, he he was the assistant deputy administrator or something like that. It, it's a long title, and it's funny because the report actually calls out senators giving him the wrong title and then correcting the title, and it's like this long old thing. And I'm like, okay, I get why they got it wrong. But uh, Hummelstein uh, is kind of pointed to as being the one who uh, who did this coordination. So obviously, you know, it's not James Webb; it's this other guy who's who's even close to this. The problem is that Hummelstein is a thorough bigot. The The report has some quotes from him that are just, they're horrible. Um, let me see if I can scroll down here real quick. I've got a bunch of things highlighted, which kind of defeats the purpose of highlighting. So Hummelstein is quoted as saying that homosexuals are undesirable as employees and that they are weak, unstable, and fickle people who fear detection and are therefore susceptible to the wanton designs of others, which is totally true, right? Gay people, closeted gay people are absolutely susceptible to blackmail. The problem is you're, you're saying that it's their fault 
uh, because they are weak, unstable, and fickle. It's just so judgmental and uncompassionate and horrible. I, I really, I really hate this guy. <laughs> um, so if this guy is the one that we're pointing to as being the one who is conducting the coordination between a witch hunt and James Webb State Department, that, that doesn't really sound great for the argument. They go on to uh, try to show that um, that James Webb's, in, to the extent to which he is involved in this witch hunt, he is trying to restrict um, the Huey com- the Huey Committee's access to State Department files and personnel. And the implication in the report is that that's a good thing, and that's him protecting gay people. Uh, however, the report is also pretty clear in explaining the actual motivation. James Webb didn't do this out of respect for members of the LGBT community. He instead did it um, to try and keep as much ability within the State Department as possible to fight the Cold War. The, the, the Cold War shouldn't have been a thing. Uh, I, I think no one is happy that nuclear armament is in the state it is today. And it's in the state it is today because of the Cold War. But I don't want to just say that anybody who wanted to fight the Cold War was a bad person for doing so. Everybody was running on limited information. You know, it seemed like the right response at the time through, you know, major the majority uh, perspective was that it was the right thing to do. But I, I really don't want anybody to walk away from this report thinking that um, James Webb trying to limit uh, Congress's access to his files was to protect his people. It was to protect his ability to fight the Cold War. So if if we can conclude anything uh, from this report, really the conclusion that we're allowed to come to is that James Webb wanted to keep his hands clean from the Lavender Scare. And I just I want to ask a question and I want to read a quote and let people come to their own conclusion. My question is, how good do we feel about somebody heading an agency, uh, an agency where firing accused homosexuals is was customary and so routine that this report says that it wouldn't have come to his to his attention because it was so common? How good do we feel about somebody heading an agency where firing accused homosexuals is a customary act trying to keep their hands clean. And then my quote is uh, from Paulo Freer. And he said, washing one's hands of the conflict between the powerful and the powerless means to side with the powerful, not to be neutral. There are a million forms of this quote. You can go to Malcolm X or anybody, but this is just the one that, that I happen to pick out. So sorry to be dramatic and, and a bummer, uh, <laughs> but somebody had to read the report turned out to be me and y'all know what I'm like. Yeah, we no, I'm glad. <laughs> All right, so let's do short and sweets this week. We got three of them and Dennis, what's the first? China to test space-based solar power. China announced plans to use its Tiangong space station to test key technologies related to space-based solar power. This phase one test will involve using the station's robotic arm to assemble modules for the orbital solar power system, which would then release and orbit independently from the station, deploying its solar arrays and other systems in the process. 
Phase 2 of the nation's space-based solar power plans will be conducted in geostationary orbit, while Phases 3 and 4 will aim for energy generation of 10 megawatts and 2 gigawatts in 2035 and 2050, respectively. Next, Canada to develop lunar rover for power generation. Canadian startup Stells, S-T-E-L-L-S, unveiled its plans to develop the Mobile Power Rover, or MPR, a vehicle that will generate power through solar arrays and use wireless charging to power other assets on the lunar surface. The Toronto-based company initially planned to develop a scientific rover for the moon, but came upon the idea of the NPR when they kept encountering problems with power generation in permanently shadowed regions. In addition to wireless charging, the vehicle could also transfer energy via a cable. Stells hope their MPR-1 demo rover, weighing 30 kilograms, will launch to the moon in the next few years. And then lastly, ISRO tests Gaganyaan parachute system. The Indian Space Agency achieved a significant milestone towards the nation's crew space project with the completion of its Integrated Main Parachute Airdrop Test, or IMAT. The Gaganyaan crew vehicle will ultimately have 10 parachutes, including three main chutes, taking place in the Jahansi district of Uttar Pradesh, IMAT-01 simulated the case when one main parachute failed to open and is the first in a series of tests designed to simulate different failure conditions. A 5-ton dummy mass was dropped from 2.5 kilometers and ultimately two fully inflated main parachutes were able to reduce the spacecraft to a safe landing speed with the entire sequence lasting approximately 2 to 3 minutes. All right, so let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. We have a huge amount of winners, uh, most of them last-minute guesses, and I think they were all correct, actually. So uh, the only winner that did not get the bonus points was Chris Hoffman. Um, didn't get uh, any mention of why the clue was um, a reference to this particular event. Uh, but those who did get the bonus points, uh, we have Uncle Willie, Ryan Regner, uh, Leon Running Man, Hydrax, Sykyle, Chris A.K.A. Stargarfield, and the Greek. So the event is on uh, December 5th of 2014, and it was the launch of EFT-1. And this is uh, an event. I can't remember last week, someone mentioned that they were at this event, and I was to it at least the first attempt. Um, this was a, a de-exploration flight test one. So this mm. is kind of ties into, I mean, this kind of neatly ties into what we were talking about at the top of the show um, just seven years earlier. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of all happening again. So this was the very first a test of the Orion capsule. We're going to kind of sort of talk about a lot of the same stuff that we just did. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but this was an event that I tried to watch and I went down to the Cape, which is about a two hour drive. And I went with a friend, which I rarely ever do because when I do that, the launch never happens and it didn't. <laughs> uh, so that was a uh, pointless, but, but um, so yeah, so getting to the clue, I guess at the top, um, I don't know if we want to play it again. I guess we should. Can, can you put in uh, a good word for Elmo? Yes. Cool. <laughs> I just love that. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Leon wants to hear you, Dennis, oh. do an Emma imitation. Would you put in a good word for Emma? <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's, That's pretty, the best That's I pretty got. good. <laughs> <laughs> that started to hurt halfway through. <laughs> I think that was probably better than I could do, but. That's really good. See, you got to humiliate yourself to try it. So that's your clue. <laughs> um, and yeah, that clue is in reference to the fact that NASA uh, had this whole collaboration campaign with Sesame Street uh, in order to promote uh, this particular test. Uh, for young viewers. I don't know why Exploration Flight Test 1. I, I, I couldn't tell you, um, but I guess the opportunity was there. <laughs> and that clip was from, I guess, an episode of Sesame Street that was uh, done at the Kennedy Space Center. And you can see Elmo standing kind of in the foreground in front of the Orion test capsule. 
Um, and uh, he asks a question and some, I guess, engineer somewhere off camera says yes, that he'll put in a good word. Yeah. Huh. And there were some other Sesame Street knickknacks. I think they were taken on board Orion as well. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have too much information on those. So the objectives of this test, they were uh, to test uh, the separation events heat shielding, the avionics, and parachutes, uh, or at least those were the primary things that needed to be tested. So kind of like the simple mechanics of getting it up and back to Earth, not too much else besides that. Um, it launched aboard a Delta IV Heavy. What was interesting is that uh, the launch abort system was not actually active. This was just something that was on top of the vehicle, but they had jettisoned it about six minutes into the flight. Um, and it did have two it did have two motors um, in order to jettison the thing, but other than that, it did not serve any purpose because there were no people on board. So obviously you don't really need to get the capsule away from the rocket if something goes wrong. It had a dummy service module. So just a big fake service module that didn't do much really, didn't have any solar arrays. It, it did have some onboard batteries. Uh, that's about it. And that's how um, you know it maintained power. But other than that, it didn't really do anything. Um, mm. So pretty simple, so kind of <laughs> like a big dead weight. So this was a four hour and 21 minute mission, very quick. It just went up, did two orbits and then came back. So launching from Kennedy Space Center and then splashing down off of the coast of San Diego, more kind of like Baja in that region, just off the coast, about like 50 miles or so. But the first orbit apogee was 890 kilometers and then it did a burn. It uh, relit the upper stage and it hit a second apogee of 5,800 kilometers. I remember us talking about it when this, we had just started the podcast at this time. And I do remember us talking about how this test did not actually recreate actual lunar reentry velocities. Um, that's not high enough, but it does get you about like 85% of the way there. So it's about 85% of the actual like reentry speed. In kilometers, that would be 32,200 kph uh, versus the actual reentry speeds, which would be about 38,600 kph. So not a huge difference, but actually it kind of is because the heat goes up pretty quickly as you increase the speed. Uh, what... Ram ram pressure goes as velocity squared. So yes. that makes sense. So uh, the service module detaches uh, just before reentry um, and it splashed down after, like I said, four hours and 21 minutes just off the coast of San Diego. Um, and so let's get to the test results because that's the interesting thing. So first of all, the test yielded more than 500 gigabytes of data. So that's a lot of data. I can't remember how many sensors, but it was something around like 5,000 sensors were put on this uh, spacecraft. So lots of sensors everywhere. This was all about taking just, you know, like every last bit of data you could. There were 87 objectives uh, and they met all but two of those. Um, the only two big failures were that on splashdown, one airbag did not deploy. And so these are the airbags that deploy in order to keep the capsule like upright. And so one airbag did not deploy. And then shortly after splashdown, two of the airbags actually deflated. So, but luckily I think it was already in the upright position. I think actually, um, does that sound right to you, Ben? I forgot to check it now that I'm thinking about, it. I remember some capsule being upside down, but maybe I'm thinking of the Apollo program. Was that the one where the capsule touched down upside down? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I thought, yeah, I thought there I was a Gemini. So. Oh, maybe it was a Gemini. Yeah. There, there was one that had crew and it touched and it came down upside down, right? In the ocean. I don't know how it would hit the ocean upside down unless it was really swinging. But NASA says that about half of them did flip upside down before they stabilized in the water. Apollo command modules, about half of them flipped upside down. I think that they're not as stable as you would think, you know, like they're not that buoyant, which is why yeah. you need the airbags. And so they're likely to tumble. Well, yeah. So, so they, I think a lot of capsules in this shape, but specifically Apollo had two stable orientations, nose down and nose up. So they really hope that because nose up was more stable, I think it's called like stable one or something like that. Mm. Um, 
that they they were hoping that it was going to stick in that in that orientation more often and the the airbags were a backup but it turns out the airbags were actually necessary half the time so yeah yeah so those were the two things that did not go right uh but they were relatively easy fixes um and then there was a smaller thing uh that was mentioned in a press conference um some point after they had recovered the vehicle there was um a video processing unit uh, that had reset several times. And this happened as the spacecraft was passing through the Van Allen belts. And so they said that's Shock. probably, you know, that, yeah, that's not a huge surprise there. But other than that, it was a very good test. So some findings, uh, the vehicle did suffer some MMOD damage and the amount of damage that it suffered was slightly higher than they had predicted. One thing that they couldn't analyze was uh, the forward bay cover. So this is the bay that comes off of the spacecraft in order to release the parachutes. And that actually just sank to the bottom of the ocean. So they you know, couldn't recover that. But from uh, the parts of the spacecraft that they were able to examine, I think it was actually significantly more. I said slightly. I think it was actually quite a bit more than they had expected um, as far as you know the micrometeoroid damage. The, uh, the heat shield performed very well, um, but there were some changes made. And I have to preface this by saying I'm not sure how many of these changes were made because of the test. And how many were just made because they decided to make changes? I actually kind of forgot to, yeah. you know, make sure about that because there were quite a few changes that have been made like in the intervening years. And this is not all like as a result of the test. There's yeah. like a whole It's lot been of such a long left. time, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I left some out because I don't think they had anything to do with the test. Um, but there are some, you know, pretty interesting uh, things. And one interesting note I just wanted to point out because I didn't even know this was it the hottest tiles on the space shuttle, uh, which get up to about 1,260 degrees Celsius. That's actually cooler than the back shell temperatures of the Orion spacecraft. Now, did you guys know that? Is I sure didn't. that because they have the uh, reinforced carbon-carbon at the hotter parts of the shuttle? I think it's just because of the reentry speeds. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it, coming and, in hotter. I mean, it is coming yeah. in higher than a shuttle ever would, so yeah. Well, and it's also got a much smaller area to heat. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, that is, that is surprising until you think about it. The Orion back shell gets up to about 1,730 degrees. So that's what a good 500 cents. That's almost like 500 degrees more. That is good trivia. <laughs> that's in the realm where the units stop mattering so much <laughs> to just get yeah. an instinct for how odd it is. Which is why, because like we don't see this. Like When you look at the Orion capsule, I think you kind of forget how much thermal shielding there is underneath it, you know, like all that stuff, because it does have space shuttle like tiles that cover the entire thing. You just can't see them, but they're there. So it's covered in, you know, the same kind of tiles that cover the belly of the shuttle. That's what's on the back shell of the Orion spacecraft. I mean, there might be some changes, but it's basically the same stuff. So I'm seeing, I'm going to assume Wikipedia is just wrong because it's unsighted. Wikipedia says heat of atmospheric entry for the shuttle was 1,650 degrees Celsius. I, I ain't so sure about that. But um, the FAA has an article that talks about it being uh, up to 1,477 degrees Celsius. So still, either way, below yeah. Orion. But right, you got to remember that the, the, sh- the tiles didn't cover the hottest part of the shuttle during re-entry. Mm-hmm. That was where the, the reinforced carbon carbon went. Which I guess, what would that be like? the leading edge of the wings and I guess the nose, right? And, yeah. And the nose, I think was that too. Yeah. Yeah. For, I, I'm seeing 1477 as the highest temperature on shuttle, which is slightly higher than the t- the maximum tile temperature. So that, that seems about right. And yeah, they're, they're specifically citing the, the leading edges being the, the hottest part. This is from a document on FAA on FAA's website. I don't see an author. But it looks like it's an FAA document. I wonder if those were like the hottest temperatures that were ever measured, recorded. 
Because I wonder, like, what about, like, during a Hubble servicing mission? Like, did that right. kick it up a little higher? Because yeah. I imagine a, a government document like this is just picking a, you know, I don't know, baseline temperature, you know, an yeah. average from the first N many flights or something. I agree. Um, and Orion still had to deal with more heat <laughs> one way or another. <laughs> yeah. So to that end, um, one change that was made, and I believe that this was because of the test. Uh, one thing that they quickly realized was that they were going to need more thermal protection. Uh, so um, they used uh, this very interesting 3D woven quartz thermal protection fabric. So this is like, I don't know how you make fabric out of quartz, but it's a highly specialized process. They contracted with a manufacturer that was able to do this, but it was a very, um, it's a very specialized process. So they make this, what looks like, I guess it might look kind of like a heat towel, maybe. I mean, I don't know what the texture feels like, but it's made out of quartz. It's thick. It's about 12 inches wide and three inches thick. And they, and they come in like these little blocks and they basically put them as little pads just on the bottom of the heat shield around the service module attachment points. So basically, um, those are the areas that I guess would experience um, some pretty high thermal loads that needed to be reinforced because that's where those little joints were. That's where they actually attach to the service module. And it's interesting. I don't know how... I suppose once you're, you know, you have that shock boundary and you have plasma flying around, maybe that creates like a little bit of room there, but it's still exposed. Like you still have holes in the bottom of the heat shield as far as I can tell. So there's nothing covering up those holes, but just surrounding those holes, you have these pads. They're pretty interesting. And then they're actually infused uh, with some kind of a resin. They look kind of like big chunks of wood when, like when they're done, like stained wood. Hmm. And then, uh, but yeah, those sit on the bottom of the uh, heat shield. They're also there to carry the structural load during the launch and the pyrotechnic separation. So what they were originally using was actually a 2D laminate material. So it's kind of thinner and it is basically applied in these thin layers. And uh, the thought was if this was a full reentry from the moon, so we're you know going at the full 24,000 miles per hour or whatever that is in kilometers, um, I actually originally read it in miles per hour, so I kind of forgot the kilometers. So yeah, <laughs> if so if it was around 38,000 KPH, that 2D material might actually delaminate. Uh, and that is why they wanted to get something better. And uh, like I said, they contracted with um, a supplier that was able to manufacture this stuff. So it's like a brand new material. But uh, And then the other big change was that the heat shield was uh, changed to 180 separate blocks instead of one big monolithic piece. Um, and that was in order to reduce the manufacture time by 60 days. Uh, so like, yeah, like if you look at some photos of the heat shield, it's just this one big piece that, that they just, you know, like attached to the bottom of the spacecraft. And I guess making one big chunk of heat shield is much more difficult than making 180 separate smaller ones. Then the, the other uh, thermal protection thing that they changed was that the back shell was coated in a silver metallic based thermal control coating. Um, and that was to keep Orion within a certain thermal range from negative 101 degrees Celsius to 278 degrees. So this is when it's basically in like uh, the moon's shadow and then it's on the sun side of the moon. You know, you have like these big thermal changes and I guess they weren't happy with those huge variations. Uh, so they used this silver metallic coating in order to minimize that. Um, and it did provide um, a little bit of uh, thermal protection during the reentry phase as well. But that heat shield uh, is was you know taken off and sent out for examination. So now you can actually look at the EFT-1 capsule at uh, the visitor complex at K-1 
KSC, but uh, the heat shield's not there. So they actually have like a little curtain that surrounds the bottom of it so you can't see what's missing, um, which I don't know why. <laughs> like, why not just look at that too? I don't know if, you know, there's any ITAR stuff there. <laughs> um, I doubt it. I think it's just for aesthetic reasons. And uh, the EFT1 capsule was actually considered for uh, the abort test, which I don't remember when that happened. I think a couple of years later, but they actually just used a boilerplate capsule for that because in that case, it was mostly just to, you know, test the abort motor. Uh, I guess you don't need an actual capsule for that. Um, but it said in the article that I read that if they ever did need it, they would bring it back out and, you know, they would do tests if, you know, like necessary. But at this point, I guess it's not going to happen. Uh, we have Artemis up and going, so I don't think that they're going to be pulling it out of retirement. But uh, yeah, that's my really quick and sweet short or my short and sweet version of this <laughs> week's Twisif. Thank you, David. I I did not think that EFT1 was going to be as good of a listen. Thank you for... <laughs> for making that really interesting. Well, next week is going to be the 6th through the 12th of December. Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 2010, feeling salty. All right. Short, short and sweet clue. Short, short and salty clue. If you think you know what this clue is referencing, shoot us a tweet. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. Um, all right, so let's do uh, upcoming spaceflight events. We got a bunch of those uh, again. Uh, what's the first one, Dennis? Well, speaking of an again, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> we got one that Ben uh, gave a nice description of uh, last week. But this is the Falcon Nine that'll be taking the Hakuto R uh, I space commercial Japanese lunar lander as well as lunar flashlight to orbit, and um, it's been delayed evidently, and uh, I think it's only slipped the day. Um, but in any event, it will now launch, hopefully, on November 30th, uh, Wednesday, at 0839 UTC from Cape Canaveral. Uh, slick 40. After that, Falcon 9 Block 5. Did I even say Falcon <laughs> 9 the whole time? Oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next up, we have a Soyuz 21A with a Frigate M upper stage. Um, we know that that's the ascent vehicle. We know that the launch time is probably correct. Um Launch library is citing uh, drop zone announcements. The thing that we're not sure about is what's on board. However, right now it looks like it is uh, a Russian military intelligence satellite uh, called Nyetron 2. Uh, that is going to be launching out of Plesiesk on Wednesday, November 30th, between 2100 hours UTC and uh, 2300 hours UTC. And then after that, also on November 30th, we have the coverage of the Artemis 1 mission status briefing to preview Orion's distant retrograde orbit departure on December 1st. So we were you know, discussing that earlier. Um, and it will also discuss the recovery assets preparation for December 11th. Um, and that's when the splashdown will take place in the Pacific Ocean. So I guess just basically a briefing about the departure. The splashdown doesn't happen until the 11th, but I guess it's just like a recap, kind of like what we did, I suppose, like earlier. <laughs> Sort of the same thing, but you can watch it on NASA TV. So yeah, you can check that out. And that will be starting at 5 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. And then you can keep your NASA TV on for the next few days. And on December 3rd at 6 a.m. Eastern will be coverage of U.S. Spacewalk 82. So this is more iRoses. Um, this one specifically at the Starboard Fortress. And uh, Josh Cassada and Frank Rubio heading out again. Uh, the EVA is scheduled to begin at 7.25 a.m. Eastern time and expected to last up to seven hours. After that is another NASA TV event. Um, this is the Artemis 1 mission status briefing. 
And this time they're going to be discussing Orion's return powered flyby the moon and decisions to deploy recovery assets to see. So David was talking about their prospective. This is going to be uh, a little more uh, up to date, I'm assuming. Um, that's going to be Monday, December 5th at 5 p.m. Eastern time on NASA TV. All right. And then after that, on December 6th, we have the coverage of Russian Spacewalks 56 to relocate a radiator from the Rosfit module to the Nauka multipurpose laboratory module uh, at the International Space Station. So the uh, when that will be exactly, don't know, that's TBD. Um, but it'll last around seven hours. Uh, yeah, check it out. And then finally, we have uh, something we've been talking about a lot. Uh, ABL Space Systems mm-hmm. uh, made in flight of their RS-1 uh, Demo-1 launch. And uh, what we do know is that there is going to be a, uh, a daily three-hour launch window. And it's going to start uh, Wednesday, December 7th. And uh, it opens at 1 p.m. Alaskan Standard Time, uh, which is 2200 UTC. And so, uh, fingers crossed that they uh, launch after they had their uh, abort at the pad uh, recently. And so, at T minus 1.75 seconds. So, it was just about ready to go. But I'll be super excited to see if they can do it. And good luck. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Okay. And with that, let's do it the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Chris, a.k.a. Stig Garfield, Colin, Deathkin, Mike, The Greek, BT, Psykyle, Uncle Willie, Ryan Rigner, and Leon Running Man for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the Orbital Mechanics slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it, and we'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.